Welcome to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's about the Bills and the beer. Here's your host, John Murphy. Hey there, welcome to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. This is our third podcast, and I'm John Murphy. Hey, good timing, right? Things are going really well for the Buffalo Bills at 2-0, and you know what? They're going pretty well for Sullivan's Brewing Company as well. That's what we do here. We talk Bills and beer every week here on the podcast. Happy to have you with us here today. On this podcast, we're going to talk about the Bills in NFL football with Jimmy Cephalo, the play-by-play voice of the Miami Dolphins. Bills beat Miami 31-28 on Sunday. The Bills are 2-0 for the second year in a row. It's the first time they've done that since the Super Bowl era back in the early 90s. Also today, we're going to talk with Mike Schatzel of the Schatzel Group. It's one of Western New York's premier restaurant groups. They own Cole's, Brennan's Bowery Bar, uh, several others. They own Thin Man on Elman Avenue. They're actually getting into brewing beer at Thin Man. We'll get Mike Schatzel's thoughts on the beer business, on the restaurant business. We've got a lot of ground to cover with him. We will start today, though, with some thoughts on the Bills and their latest victory, 31-28 over the Miami Dolphins in Miami. The Bills, the number one passing attack in the NFL after two weeks, averaging 360 yards per game through the air. Amazing. 417 yards and four touchdowns by Josh Allen in the win over the Dolphins. Really, I'm not going to say I'm shocked. I expected Josh would get better. He has improved every year almost on a week-to-week basis since he's been with the Bills. And so I'm not shocked that he is getting better. Now, look, it's only two games. I'm concerned about irrational exuberance out there regarding the Buffalo Bills. Uh, 14 games to go. I don't think they're going to finish the season as the number one passing attack, but they're off to a great start. You know, they have had eight different receivers catch passes in each of their first two games. It's amazing. The best news about that to me is that the Bills are showing their versatility, their adaptability. I don't think they're going to be number one passing all year long. I said that. But it's an important dimension to their offense. That's what they set out to do when they talked about it after they lost to Houston in the playoffs last year. They said, we want to be versatile offensively. We want to have that dimension to our offensive attack. They've got it now. They've demonstrated that through two weeks. Um, They will, I think, have weeks when they focus on the run game, and I think the run game will be pretty good as well. But for the first couple of weeks, it's been the passing game, and it's been great to watch. Buffalo defense playing without their two top linebackers, Tremaine Edmonds and Matt Milano, did okay against the Dolphins. Dolphins put up 28 points. I want to say this about the Dolphins. I think they were extremely game. I think they are miles ahead of Buffalo's week one opponents, the New York Jets. I think the Dolphins are a gritty, gutsy team. Look, they don't have... A similar offensive performers that the Bills have on the field. They can't put that kind of talent on the field, and yet they still produce 28 points. It's a testament to Ryan Fitzpatrick, I think, and his gritty determination. I think that bleeds through right to the, through the Dolphins' roster. I think they all feel like we got to be gritty. we got to hustle. we got to do whatever we can to put points up on the board, and they did it Sunday against the Buffalo defense, missing a couple of key pieces. Bills are going to be tested uh, this next game against the Rams coming up Sunday. The Rams coming to uh, Bill Stadium. It is a step up in competition. Uh, the 2-0 Rams, they've been pretty good. They've got Aaron Donald, one of the premier, if not the premier, defensive player in the NFL. And look, the Bills handled business the first two weeks, beating two uh, divisional opponents. But this is definitely a step up in competition this coming Sunday when the Rams come to town. Got a couple of other NFL observations. Um, we did our first virtual game last Sunday as we watched the Bills and the Dolphins on television monitors In our broadcast booth at Bill Stadium, Steve Tasker and I doing the game that way. Watching on TV, calling the game. Never done that before. 
It was interesting. It was difficult. First of all, it was difficult to get the right feeds. We have special uh, feeds sent to us, courtesy of, well, not courtesy, we're paying for it. CBS Television Network and the NFL arranged for special feeds coming our way. And that's what we watched. We just didn't know what to expect. So we had to kind of make in-game corrections as to which feed we would put on which monitor. So that was interesting. Then, of course, you know this if you're a Bills fan trying to watch the game uh, Sunday. We lost the video signal for a few plays. Only a few plays for us. Uh, but that was enough. That, that Going into the game, that was my worst nightmare. What if the shot goes down? Well, the shot went down. We lost video. I had to work off the NFL uh, uh, real-time play-by-play uh, description of each play, which is nothing near uh, what you need to do play-by-play. But we did it for a couple of plays. Then we got one of our video feeds from Miami back up and running. So I worked off that while many uh, Bills fans didn't have a way to didn't have a way to uh, watch what they were doing. Uh, and they stayed with it. I think most Bills fans stayed with it. So uh, that was interesting. I don't want to do that again, but that was certainly interesting. Um, then there was a 32-minute lightning suspension. There's like a baseball rain delay. That was incredible. Early in the, well, one play into the second half, a lightning suspension. Never had that before, but we dealt with it. You know, uh, it was interesting. It covered it like a rain delay. You know, we talked, Steve Tasker and I, Sal Capaccio, talked a little bit, sent it back to Network Control, let them handle it a few minutes. It was just a crazy day, crazy uh, broadcast. Good work by our producers, by the way, of the Sunday broadcast. Greg Harvey and Todd Brody set us up well, kept us going, uh, made adjustments as we're called for during the game. Should get easier, right? I hope so. It's got to get easier than it was last Sunday. One other NFL broadcasting note, and this came out late last week. The Pro Football Hall of Fame is going to honor Fox TV's Joe Buck with the Pete Rosell Award for his contributions to NFL broadcasting. It's the same award that my predecessor Van Miller won about 16, 17 years ago from Canton, Ohio. The Pete Rosell Award. You know, everyone has a favorite football broadcaster. And I've run into many over the last several years who said that Joe Buck is not their favorite. I, I know some people who say they can't stand him on an NFL game. You know what? I'm here to tell you, if you haven't known already, Joe Buck is great. He is great. He is a great football broadcaster. He is a Hall of Famer. Uh, he got his job at Fox and on baseball at an early age. Yes, nepotism was involved. His father, uh, Jack Buck, one of the all-time great baseball broadcasters, at least, and also did football. So that's how he got the job. But Joe Buck has earned it. He's handled every major event that's been handed to him. NFL football, Super Bowls, World Series, golf majors. Uh, He's done it with class and dignity and expertise. Yes, he is irreverent at times. He is cocky, maybe. But I'm telling you, he's good. He's great. Quick Joe Buck story. I introduced myself to Joe Buck at the Super Bowl in Houston about three and a half years ago. And we were both in the media center, and he was just kind of wandering around, I don't know, looking for somebody. Or, and I saw he was alone, and I figured, I'm going to talk to this guy. And I went up to him, introduced myself, told him who I was. I said, I got three things to tell you, Joe. Number one, he, he had just come out with a book about six months earlier. And it's a good book. It's not a great book. It's a good book about his career, his approach. Um, and that, that's okay. It's a good book. I, I told him how much I enjoyed his book. Second, I told him I met his father, Jack Buck. Uh, once and had a great memorable encounter with Jack Buck. Bills and Cleveland in the early 90s Monday night football game in the old Cleveland Stadium. You used to broadcast from up on top of the roof of that old place and we were up top, myself and Van Miller and Joe Buck and Hank Stram were, uh, Jack Buck and Hank Stram were on top and nowhere to go, you know, 9 o'clock kickoff, 7, 7.30, nothing to do and uh, Jack Buck was hanging on outside, hanging around outside, looking at the fans filing into the stadium. I went out and just struck up a conversation with him. 
what a great guy. He, Jack Buck was amazing. Talking about the old uh, St. Louis baseball Cardinals, the team that he came up with, you know, Julian Javier and Bob Gibson and all those great players, Kurt Flood, Lou Brock. Had a great, like, hour-long conversation with Jack Buck. And I wanted to let Joe know that I met his father, and I really appreciated his father. I really enjoyed talking to him. And the third issue I talked about with Joe Buck was his performance with John Smoltz in the 2016 World Series the Indians and the Cubs a couple of months earlier. It was just, a, it was a great World Series, a seven-game World Series, and those two were sensational, and they usually are sensational. And and Joe Buck, Joe Buck listened to me, was nice to me. He was gracious, humble. He knows he was handed this career because of his father's expertise, but he's up to the job, more than up to the job. He excels at this job. Yeah, he's a Hall of Famer. He deserves it. Just give him, I guess, if you don't like him, listen to him a little bit. See what you think again. I think Joe Buck certainly deserves winning the Pete Rozelle Award for excellence in football broadcasting. That's it. Just wanted to get that in. All right, the podcast is underway. We're going to start with football talk after the Bills' visit to Miami on Sunday. We're going to start with another great broadcaster, the play-by-play voice of the Miami Dolphins, Jimmy Cephalo. Sullivan's pro football kickoff continues. Our guest, Jimmy Cephalo, the play-by-play voice of the Miami Dolphins, former Dolphins wide receiver for six seasons, played in two Super Bowls, uh, played at Penn State. He was an NFL analyst for NBC, does play-by-play for the Dolphins, and also a host of a morning show on WIOD Radio, South Florida's first news, a daily radio show. He's also a, a wine expert. We'll talk to him about that. But Jimmy Cephalo, good to talk to you. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, John. Thanks for having me on the show. We appreciate you carving out some time for us here today. Let's start I guess, well, let's start with the broadcasting and uh, the Bills-Dolphins game on Sunday. Uh, you worked at the stadium at Hard Rock, Hard Rock right? You're doing all the games right. at Hard Rock Stadium. We're doing every uh, game home and away from our broadcast booth at Hard Rock Stadium. The travel restrictions by the NFL, uh, and you understand why. They, uh, they don't want broadcasting coming along. Or a lot of superfluous people who are not germane to the exact uh, game of football on Sunday. So we were able to sit in our broadcast booth at Hard Rock Stadium in Miami Gardens, and we get a feed from the truck, whether it's Fox or whether it's a CBS or whomever, and we're able to see in real time the game and call it off a monitor. So it's uh, Jason Taylor, who's uh, replaced Bob Greasy this year. Bob decided he didn't want to, you know, Bob is, it's the first time in 40 years he's not been in a broadcast booth on the weekend. He just decided to take it easy for a year. And Jason is terrific. And Joe Rose, the former Dolphin tight end. So, whether it's home or away, we're at the same booth, uh, Hard Rock Stadium. Yeah, we got the same setup. Uh, we did yesterday's game from uh, Bill Stadium. I wonder, what did you think? And it was my first experience yesterday. Calling the game off TV, you did it a week ago when the, the Dolphins played the Patriots. What did you think of that? How did that feel as a broadcaster? Well, John, you've been at Hard Rock Stadium broadcast booth, right? And I'm very lucky to have this job. I love the job. But our broadcast booth is... is I know. <laughs> not it's at, so we're sitting... Uh, in the corner of an end zone and where, where I am, your booth is a little better when the bills come to town. I really can't see the field and <laughs> I can see parts of it. So I call the whole game off the monitor anyway. Uh, and it, cause it's the only way I can do it. And, and we're also on the other side of, of the cameras. So if you look at the monitor, the team is going in one direction. If you look at the field, they're going in the opposite direction. I know that's under, underneath the tent a little bit to, to the viewers, but Put it this way, it's easier for me in my advanced age and eyesight problems to be able to call it off the monitor. And I, I love doing it, so uh, I've done it for, for years that way. That was one of the first things I said to my partner, Steve Tasker, 
on Sunday, I said, hey, as bad as this might be, calling it off TV, it's a better view than we get at Miami, you know, so we, we might be better <laughs> off calling it off TV. And the stadium is gorgeous, by the way. Yeah. They've, um, Stephen Ross has put a half a billion dollars into that stadium. It's state-of-the-art, and, uh, and part of the re requirement, the reason we're that way is with the new stadiums, they're requiring, I think it's nine broadcast booths if you want to have a Super Bowl. So they had a divide up space that they had in nine spaces for basically having one game every four or five years because they've got the international broadcast and, you know, all of that going on in Spanish and English. And so that's part of the reason for it. But he's done an amazing job in, uh, in making that stadium uh, state of the art. Hey Jim, it, it was now, we're going to talk about the football for a second, but the game was just weird, right? With the CBS mm. Video going out and then a lightning delay it was just one of the weird games. I, I think maybe the most weird game I've ever broadcast before. Well, we were what well, we were worried about. Uh, I'm so pleased to have been a part of the longest game in NFL history. It was seven hours and eight minutes, I believe, and they were all rain delays at Hard Rock a couple of years ago. And so, because when you get one of those patterns of lightning in South Florida, you, it's it's there, and that's what we were worried about yesterday. It was a 36 minute uh, rain delay. At one point, our broadcast feed went out completely for only about. 20 seconds and uh, I know TV lasted longer but we were able to get it back and call the game for a while uh, the Steelers Broncos game came up on our monitors <laughs> I thought well heck I guess that's I'll call Big, Big Ben Roethlisberger I <laughs> to that. why not <laughs> all right the football what did you make of the game it was a, a competitive game and a pretty good game huh? yeah yeah it, it was it, you know the Dolphins wound up taking the lead uh, in the third in the fourth quarter for a little bit their defense has just had all kinds of problems. They can't get after the quarterback. And, you know, the problem, uh, if you get after the Bills quarterback, you better put him on the ground with some really big people because he's bigger than most of the linebackers, than all the linebackers the Dolphins have. Uh, so Josh Allen was someone who they knew they were going to have problems with. But he throws for over 400 yards. They lose uh, Byron Allen right at the beginning of the football game. Uh, they're, you know, uh, all-pro cornerback who came over from the Dallas Cowboys. And uh, – so they get a rookie first-round draft pick in there trying to cover, and uh, Diggs just ran all over him. So, you know, those are the issues when you got a young football team. you got three players over the age of 28 on this roster. So when you look at it, you, you have to realize it's a young football team uh, with the adversity of going in a locker room and coming back out and going right back in because of the delay. I think it did impact them in some ways. But uh, the Dolphins' defense has got to get better. You know, I was thinking about the Dolphins' offense a little bit and how they hung with the Bills, Jim. And, and mm -hmm. the, the offense, without you know, some, you know, superstar playmakers, they're they're kind of like their quarterback, like Fitz. They're kind of gritty, you know. They just make things happen. I yeah. thought that was in play yesterday. Huh? Yeah, and he, and he leads the van too. I mean, when he's diving forward, thirty-eight years old, and and scrambling, and down there on the goal line, he, he makes a dive for the end zone. The, the the players just react to him, and they they get a lot of juice from that. Uh, but they do have a lot of great players, I think. Uh, Mike Kosecki had a great game, former Penn State tight end. And, you know, he's a former volleyball player. can catch anything in a radius that's extreme. Uh, their left tackle was a first-round pick. Uh, Jackson, who played really well, I thought, yesterday. They kept Fitz, Fitzpatrick clean for the most part. So the offensive line is coming along. They're starting two rookies for the first time on the offensive line uh, since 2008. So they're trying to get better in that respect. And the wide receivers, Devontae Parker was banged up. He pulled a hamstring, uh, re-injured it, actually, against the Patriots a week before. and uh, But didn't have a bad game. So they're getting better. They're getting better. Uh, I just think defensively they need to improve. They've got to be able to get after a quarterback. And if they can't, 
you got a young secondary, it's just going to get you to line. You know, I was thinking about that. Um, there, I couldn't say this about the Jets a week ago after the Bills beat the Jets, but for the Dolphins, there is hope, and it's not that far away. They are getting better, and you can see how they'd be better at the end of the year. Yeah, no, the same thing happened last year. The Dolphins uh, won five of their last eight games, I believe it was. Uh, but Brian Flores is, is going to be a very good football coach. He already is, but I mean, a good head coach. And, and then you've got to, uh, uh, you know, sitting on the bench waiting to come in. There's no hurry for him. Uh, because you do have a very young offensive line. He's coming off the hip injury. And Fitz is, is doing his thing uh, as a leader. And he's been uh, doing everything he can to help, too, in practice sessions. He'll get his chance this year a little bit. But I don't think he'll be a full-time starter until next year. What did you think of the Bills, his overall impressions of the Buffalo Bills? Uh, that's an impressive team. Uh, defensively, I thought Davis White is terrific. Uh, you get a very good secondary. Uh, Jerry Hughes has always been a killer for the Miami Dolphins. He always has been. And, uh, and offensively, you've got a quarterback for the future. I don't think there's any doubt about it. I was very impressed by, by Diggs. I thought, he, you know, making that move gave up a lot for him. But boy, oh boy, he showed why yesterday. So it's an impressive football team. John Brown, you know, gets behind Xavier Howard, another all-pro kind of a guy with the Dolphins in the secondary, uh, and wins the game for him. So collectively – I think the Bills are an up-and-coming team, and really the team to beat in the AFC East, not just this year, I think for the foreseeable future, too. Jim, the Dolphins made 13,000 tickets available or something like 11,000 paid attendance, I guess, yesterday. Uh, how many, How many? what percentage of those 11,000 were Bills fans, do you think? Could you tell? Yeah, a lot of them there, man. I mean, you look at always do. a lot of Bills fans. Well, there, there always is, though. I mean, you yeah. know, they used to get up. And it's just to get out of Buffalo. You know? <laughs> and I can say that because my mother's from Buffalo. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> yeah, I knew that. Yeah. Went to high school up there. Uh, and I got a lot of relatives that were up there. I don't know if they still are. But anyway, I, I think the Bills fans always travel extremely well. It's a, it's a, it's a very, um, you know, rambunctious bunch. And, and I just, I, I love going to Buffalo and seeing them in the stands. But they, they travel well. And they come down here. And every time we play them, no matter what the, the record is, those Bills fans want to see their team. Dewey Cephalo, our guest play-by-play voice of the Dolphins, also a six years a wide receiver for Miami. I was looking back at your career, Jim, and, and you played in really what's considered one of the great games in NFL history, right? The divisional playoff game that you lost to San right. Diego. But what a game that was. I thought that's what you're talking about, the longest game. But you have had longer games as a broadcaster. But that was an amazing <laughs> game. It was. Uh, we were down 24 to nothing. I believe it was 24 to nothing. Uh, early uh, in the game, I mean, in the first half. And then we made a furious comeback, to, I think, to tie the game, if I remember correctly, at halftime with a hook and lateral, which was a play that Shula had in the playbook forever, but nobody ever used. Basically, a wide receiver went and uh, made a, a button hook and threw the football to him, and it was Jarrell Harris, and he pitched the football to Tony Nathan, the running back. So everybody collapsed onto uh, Duriel Harris, pass from Don Strzok, and when they did, he pitched the ball back to Tony Nathan, the running back, going down the sideline. We tied the game at the end of the first half. The crowd went crazy. And we had a chance to win it in overtime, but Uwe Von Schaumann basically shanked a, a relatively short field goal and we wound up losing. That was, what, the day after New Year's. I remember watching that game. It was rainy, right, that day in South Florida, wasn't it? Well, it was actually cool in South Florida. And what bothered us mostly was uh, their big tight end, the Hall of Famer, his name escaped. Winslow. Kellen Winslow. Kellen Winslow. It was probably, I mean, when you looked in the stands, there were people wearing coats. It was like in the 50s. In Miami, in the 50s, it's, you know, it, it, it's like, you know, you, it's like ice fishing in Buffalo. I mean, this is, it's cold. 
Yeah. And uh, and here's Kellen Winslow. Like, he can't handle the heat of South Florida. They're carrying him off the field. And he's running back on. And we didn't buy it. And anyway, it's still a sore point to a lot of Dolphin fans, I think. And one, one other game I want to ask you about. It's a famous game in Bill's history. 1980, the Dolphins had dominated Buffalo. 20 straight wins in the 70s. Season opener 1980, Bills win 17 to 7. You played in that game. You had a catch. What do you remember about that day and, and that particular uh, game? Most I remember, we won all the games in the 70s. And so we're up there on a Monday night game, or I think it was, whatever it was. It was dark out when we left. What I remember is nothing about the game, but a lot about the post game. <laughs> you know, it was always fun to leave the stadium because the Buffalo Bills fans knew these were our buses. And <laughs> they, there was always one lady. She was a large woman, and she would get on top of this Winnebago, and she would moon us. Oh, and we'd all, we'd all wait for her leaving. But on this day, there were people, uh, they were, I, I think alcohol was probably involved with this. <laughs> and some young guy was throwing uh, rocks or something at the, at, at the buses. And we could see him up front, and the police got him, and they put him in handcuffs. And as our bus went by, and they're putting him in the car. He turned around and flipped us the bird. And I have so much respect for him because I thought, <laughs> well, that's the way to go to jail, right? That's it. So that's what I remember about that game. Not a damn thing about what the score was or whether I had a catch. Yeah, you said alcohol is involved. We are both now a little <laughs> bit involved in the alcohol business. Um, I'm working with Sullivan's. And, of course, you're doing, you've done it for a while. You had a, a wine store. You had an association with Bacardi's. And, and now you have a regular show, Cephalos, Eat This, Drink That, Go. Tell me about right. how you got started in, in that uh, line of work, too. Well, my father uh, was a winemaker in Pennsylvania, my grandfather in, in Italy and Pennsylvania, and his father in Italy. So I grew up, uh, you know, carrying boxes of grape to a crusher long before I ever touched a football or a microphone. And so I just, it, it's been a part of my life. And uh, the guys used to make fun of me. We'd go out after uh, you know, practice and we'd have a beer and I'd have a glass of wine. And it was like, what's wrong? What is that? You know, <laughs> and uh, so I, I just, lived my life uh, surrounded by wine and I, I opened wine bars and wine stores and at a certain point Bacardi came to me and asked me to be their United States wine ambassador they sell more wine than any company in the world mm. uh, it's uh, Martini and Rossi is owned by Bacardi they own about 200 products doers uh, you know tank I, I mean so many different products you wouldn't even believe it uh, but one of them is Martini and Rossi worldwide it's just called Martini uh, here in the United States, it's called Martini Rossi. But I would travel the country and train their sales staff about our wine products. And I did that for about 11 or 12 years. So I, I've done this a long time. And when I had the opportunity, uh, WIOD, my station here, an iHeart Media station, was kind enough to give me an hour on Saturday mornings. And they said, what are you going to do with the hour? Uh, I said, I'm going to do a wine show. And it just trend, it transformed itself into a food, wine, and travel program. You deal with beer at all, or are you still anti-beer? All the time. Oh, yeah. No, I'm a beer fan, too. Yeah, I'm a fat tire kind of guy. But a Sullivan's, i got to try this now. Yeah. I'm excited about that, too. Yeah, it's been a good association for me. It strikes me that we're both, I mean, it's, I don't know if it's a natural extension, but being around people in our jobs, yeah. it's almost a, a natural progression of getting involved in, in the hospitality industry, in restaurants, and in your case, wine, in my case, beer. It makes sense almost, yeah. doesn't it? I remember going, we were in Buffalo, as a matter of fact, and we went out uh, with the Bacardi people the night before a Dolphin Bills game, and Joe Rose came with me. And uh, the next morning I saw him, he didn't look too good. <laughs> and I said, he's our, our Dolphin analyst and former tight sure. And he said, uh, I said, Joe, are you okay? He said, I'm never going out with professional drinkers again. <laughs> 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 and that's, 
You know, I think it is a natural progression. You know, we, in the radio business too, you have to be, you have to be able to be sociable and, uh, you know, uh, meet new customers and clients and listeners. It's just a natural part of it, I think. Last thing I have for you, Jim, in this COVID era, and who knows how much longer this goes, what do you, how has the hospitality business been in South Florida? How is your show doing? How are the businesses doing that? Well, it's, it's tough right now. Uh, we do it for both radio and television. And uh, we have a live a, a studio, uh, a, a kitchen studio, where we bring chefs in every week to, to prepare foods. And sometimes there's two or three chefs on an hour-long show. Uh, but right now, there's none of that going on. So we were running taped programs. There's no other way to do this. And uh, the hospitality industry in South Florida has really been decimated. We're losing uh, top-notch restaurants left and right. I think the entire country is, and that's why it's so important to get back open at some point. Um, you know, you're, you're losing people to a lot of different things, not just COVID, but depression and uh, alcohol abuse and drug abuse. And, um, you know, it, it's a difficult issue right now. And, and that industry is just being crushed. So uh, we got to get it back going. Yeah, I hope there's better times ahead. And maybe as soon as uh, week 17 in the NFL season, you'll be coming up to Buffalo January 3rd. That could be fun, right? January 3rd in Buffalo. Well, well let's not get carried away, Joe. Let's, let's, let's just stay here for the entire year. We'll worry about Buffalo next year. Maybe we'll get to September. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. I appreciate it. Thanks, John. Great to talk to you. You're listening to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff with your host, John Murphy. We're with Buffalo restaurateur Mike Schatzel, the man behind Allen Burger Venture, Brennan's Bowery Bar in Clarence, Coles, Coulter Bay, Liberty Hound, Moorpad in Williamsville, the Terrace at Delaware Park, Thin Man. Hey, Mike, what do you do for a hobby? <laughs> do you have any free time? <laughs> uh, last 20 years or so, it's been uh, drinking craft beer and opening <laughs> restaurants, apparently. Yeah. Opening a lot. It's important, I think, for folks to know, and many do, that you are, uh, this is a family business. You're a third generation in your family involved in the restaurant business in Western New York, right? Yeah, my uh, my dad my dad grew up in Lackawanna, and his father owned a, uh, a saloon just off a ridge on uh, Electric Avenue. And then uh, my dad opened uh, Lachlan's, which was ended up being Lachlan's again. Uh, yeah. He opened that in the 60s. And then uh, he bought Coles in 1973 and opened Brennan's in 1970. So I was born in 72, so I was pretty much just uh, born into it. Yeah. And you started right into it, too, right? At a very young age, you were bussing tables at, at Coles. Did I read that right? Yeah, he brought me. Uh, I started working Sunday brunches with uh, when I was in fourth grade. Wow. So, you know, I just carried clear some plates, carry bus pans, and, you know, and I'd make like 10 bucks. So it was, it was pretty cool back then. Yeah. What did, what do you recall? What do you, what did you learn about the restaurant business that back then that, uh, you know, maybe was totally off, off the mark? I mean, what did you think about it when you were 10 compared to what you know about it now? I was just kind of like, uh, we used to come on Friday nights a lot with my dad, you know, my, my sisters and my mom, and we'd come to dinner on Friday night. And I just kind of love watching my dad be the, you know, the center of the, the party, everybody coming up to talk to him. And I was kind of in awe of him. Just, you know, he knew everybody. And occasionally you, you see some famous people in there and they go come right up to my, you know, famous being like a Sabres player, a Bills player back then. And uh, it was just like a cool thing to watch. And, you know, he'd be on the news a lot, you know, interviewing on, 
St. Patrick's Day or New Year's Eve, Coles was kind of like the epicenter of the social scene back in the, the 80s for Buffalo. And it was uh, it was always like a cool thing to watch. So I think I was kind of hooked at a young age and knew what I was what I was going to do when I got older. Coles is special. I mean, I spent a considerable time there, I guess, back in the 80s. Um, what was it about that place? What is it about that place that that made it such a destination point for Western New Yorkers? I think it's like the history, you know, it opened in 1934, so it's definitely, if it's not the oldest, uh, my dad claims it's the oldest continual liquor license in the city, I don't know if that's true or not, but, you know, I know Ray Flynn's was real old, but, you know, that's not open anymore, and so I wouldn't, you know, this pretty much opened right after Prohibition ended, so... Uh, it can't be anything too much older unless ones that were, you know, open pre-prohibition. But I think it's just the feeling you walk in and it's just, you know, you got the uh, all the college pennants on you know, up on the banners and just the old wood. And it's like you can't you can't recreate that anymore. You know, no matter how good your carpenter is or whatever, like you can't, you know, the old, you know, tobacco stained everything smoke. And it's just, uh, you know, it's an old pub and it's. It's just it's has a lot of memories. Right? It's authentic. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Hey, Mike, um, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, owning and operating restaurants in the COVID era, and we'll get back to other things. But mm-hmm. so you've been around since the 80s in restaurants. Have you ever seen anything like the last uh, seven months or so and, and the impact that the quarantine and, and COVID has had on the restaurant business? I, I, I don't think, you know, obviously, I don't know what wartime was like, but uh, I don't think I, there's anything been – been like this ever it's it's kind of crazy it's you know you're you're doing your best and you know people are still afraid to come out and obviously we're we're definitely worried i think you know the city and the government was really helpful to with the ppp money to help you get through and then allowing you to kind of expand your your footprint into your parking lot or sidewalks or whatnot but you know if, if they hadn't do that uh it would have been a rough rough go you know, it's just, you know, sales are probably 50% of what they were at best. And the problem is you can't, you know, you can't have 50% of the labor. So, you, you know, you have a bare minimum labor to open the doors and that's, you know, your percentages are all out of whack now. And yeah. so it's been, you know, and then your purveyors, you know, they're, there's so some prices get raised and, you know, it's just kind of snowball effect. And so it's, how it's you, definitely been tough. Yeah. How have you kept it going now, seven months in? What's been the key? Uh, takeout. You know, we, we kind of had a really uh, up our, our takeout game. And uh, you know, most of the places are down. Allen Burger Venture has been plugging away. My partner, Dino, has done a phenomenal job. Just he's there seven days a week just working his tail off. And he's, you know. Hats off to him because he's really kept that going. We're actually just as busy now there as we were pre-COVID. Mm. So that was, but now we're about to lose our patio. And so, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed, we can keep it going. But it's just a lot of, uh, you just kind of have to change your outlook. And it's how do I, how do I reach people that want to to uh, eat from home? You know, so we're looking in delivery services. We're looking in, you know, it's, it's Grubhub's nice, but they, you know, they take 30% off the top. Yeah. So there's not much, not many crumbs left when, it, yeah. when it's all said and done. You mentioned the patio at uh, Allen Burger Venture. I wonder, 
um, you know, outdoor dining has, has been great. And the, the timing hooked up, obviously, with the summer. And uh, the, the government's talking about some uh, financial help to retrofit some of these places, restaurants, for, for more outdoor dining. Would that be a, a shot in the arm? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, any help they can give us to help us get through, you know, hopefully we get, you know, nice September. You know, September's almost been like August has been the last couple of years, but this one seems to be a little colder. Yeah. So, you know, I I think uh, our worries are that people that were comfortable sitting in the outside uh, tables are going to start staying home. And then if that happens, then, you know, we could be in trouble. Yeah. We're with uh, Mike Chancel, a Buffalo restaurateur, owns a variety of restaurants. I've read somewhere where you said that there's one common theme among all of these places that you're involved with, uh, Mike. It's, uh, quote, craft beer and the vibe. What, what did you mean by that? What, what, what are you thinking there? Um, with craft, you know, I kind of got craft. I lived in San Diego in the late uh, 90s, so I kind of got that craft beer uh bug back then so when i returned home in around 2000 um i started looking to kind of get the craft beer scene you know buffalo was kind of it still is but uh you know kind of stuck on the bat back then in your your bud light and flying bison was i don't know it was might have just opened um and you had southern tier so there were two local breweries in ebc elkaville so, but, you know, people's palates weren't, you know, they weren't as daring um, as, you know, as they are now. But uh, I just kind of took a, a whim at Kohl's and started buying, put some craft beers on, an IPA and a couple things. And it just kind of started taking off. And then I started uh, investigating a little more. And, you know, the Internet was huge because you can find anything you want back then. Um, so then I just started researching breweries that I could get my you know, hands on and it just kind of took off and, uh, Cole's kind of created, uh, along with pizza plant and Coulter Bay at the time when it was owned by the Brinkworths. Um, you know, so downtown kind of had in Mr. Goodbar next door, he started selling a lot of good beer. So we kind of all fed off each other and kind of created, um, an appetite locally for, for craft beer. And it, uh, you know, it's really taken off since, since then. One of your places, Thin Man on Elmwood, and the new Thin Man location, you actually are brewing beer. What got you into that, Mike? Uh, it kind of seemed like the after uh, my bar Blue Monk closed uh, about four or five years ago, um, I was approached by Rocco Termini about potentially opening up uh, a brew pub together, and then. Uh, you know, I kind of seem like the next logical step. I'm not a brewer per se, so, but I had, you know, through my connections in the craft beer scene, I, I, I met a lot of people and then uh, it kind of seemed like the next logical thing to do was exciting. And then I uh, convinced uh, Rudy Watkins, who's our brewer, to, uh, he was at Community Beer Works at the time and kind of convinced him to uh, come join us. And he's done, you know, this is probably the smartest move we definitely smartest move i've made you know brewery wise hmm. and uh he you know he does a phenomenal job and he's i think he's making the best beer in, in western new york so it's been it's been a great thing so far hey my one i'm i'm a neophyte in the in the beer business obviously working with sullivan's but one thing i i think i've discovered after a few months of this is that 
Um, there's room for everybody, don't you think? There's room for imported Irish beer like Sullivan's, for other imports, for locally produced craft beer. I mean, there's there's room for everybody in the beer business, it seems, huh? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Sullivan's makes great products, and I remember when they came into the market, it was crazy. Like, uh, they got a lot of press, and then, you know, I know the Buffalo News did a, uh, a nice article on them, and then, like, we at Brennan's and Kohl's, we had it right on in the beginning, and the amount of people that showed up at Brennan's on that opening night was crazy to, you know, to try the beer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and obviously Guinness is a, is a mainstay as an import. And yeah, there's, you know, there's definitely people that come in and they want their old, uh, Irish or English bitters that, you know, that they grew up on. And then you got the, you know, the younger generation coming in and wants stuff with Kit Kats and marshmallows and all yeah. kinds of crazy fruits. So there's <laughs> the, the spectrum of beer is pretty crazy right now. Yeah, I, speaking of uh, of foreign produced beer, you've you've traveled a lot. Uh, what investigating breweries, checking out beer. Tell me about some of your beer related travel, Mike. Yeah, it's it was, uh, my my first foray into uh, traveling. I went with uh, some friends to Amsterdam for a couple concerts, and uh, this was probably like the mid to late aughts or whatever you call them, about two thousand six, probably seven. And uh, I fell in love with a, a Belgian beer bar in Amsterdam, and that kind of got the the wheels turning, which ultimately led to me opening uh, Blue Monk on Elmwood, and then um, and then just getting becoming like a, I was a big beer nerd, so I wherever I traveled was kind of based on beer. So you know, I've been to Europe a ton of times, and then uh, when the uh, the brewery kind of came to fruition, um, I started taking advantage of those contacts again. And then, you know, in the last couple of years, we've been invited to pour in festivals in um, Copenhagen. We've, we poured twice there last summer. We were in Portugal for wow. a festival. Um, I've been to a festival in, you know, Estonia. Um, and then this year we were supposed to, we were supposed to pre pre COVID. We were supposed to uh, go to Norway, uh, Switzerland, and then uh, last year, the, the the big one was uh, we were invited to China last year, last fall. And uh, that was such an experience. We were about uh, eight breweries from eight to ten breweries from the northeast were invited. And they just wined and dined us on Chinese cuisine. They took us to a remote part of the, the, the Great Wall. And we hiked the wall. And it was, I mean, it was a surreal experience. Yeah. Hey, my last question I have for you. You mentioned how I, I think you said the Buffalo, the Buffalo area was kind of late to the party when it comes to uh, craft beer. Um, is it still behind the times? And what about the future? Where do you think uh, uh, craft beer and, and beer in Buffalo is headed? I think we, you know, we're. I wouldn't say we're necessarily late to the party. We're a little behind. You know, like um, strange enough, we were like we were ahead of we were ahead of New York City. I thought it. You mm. know, when this kind of, but you know, Portland, Maine. Portland, Oregon, San Diego, they were at the the forefront of the, of the craft culture. You know, uh, Michigan was a big craft beer state. And then, uh, you know, guys like Tim Herzog and then Rudy and Ethan opening their breweries. Um, it kind of got things going. And I think, you know, Buffalo has really taken off. And, you know, Big Dish does a great job. Uh, you know, I'm bias towards thin man i think we do a great job and you know there's almost 30 breweries now and uh with thin man we've uh 
we've been expanding. You know, we're fully uh, available in New York State, but in the last you know year or so, we've opened up. Um, we're in Pennsylvania throughout the state now. Uh, Florida, Virginia has been strangely enough has been an amazing uh, market for us. Uh, Jersey, you know, we're just opening up um, Massachusetts and Colorado, so we're getting a lot of messages from uh, you know expats or seeing how excited they are to see a Buffalo beer and, you know, yeah. that far away from Buffalo. And, and we have some connections in Europe. So we're sending, uh, you know, every about four times a year, we send a couple of pallets over to Europe. So it's, it's kind of neat. There's this app called untap. So you can kind of see where people are drinking your beer and it's, you know, it's pretty cool to see your beer in Spain or Germany and, you know, all across Europe. So it's, it's, it's a neat thing to see. Hey, Mike, thanks for this uh, continued success. Uh, good luck getting through the next few months with COVID, and uh, maybe we'll talk again sometime. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks to Mike Schatzel, the uh, guy behind the Schatzel Restaurant Group in Buffalo. He's got Sullivan's on tap now at Cole's on Elmwood Avenue in Buffalo. Make sure you check it out. Check out any of his places in, throughout Western New York. And our thanks to Mike for joining us today. Our thanks to Jimmy Cephalo as well, voice of the Dolphins. He was a great player for Miami, too. Caught a 76-yard touchdown pass in Super Bowl 17 from quarterback David Woodley, one of the biggest plays ever in Super Bowl history. Great ambassador for the restaurant industry in South Florida, too. And he knows his stuff. You can check out his show about restaurants and bars on WIOD Radio in Miami. Cephalo, eat this, drink that, go. That's a great name. Check out Sullivan's, of course. Malting's Irish Red Ale, Sullivan's Irish Gold Ale, Sullivan's Black Marble Stout. On tap in more and more places in upstate New York, in Cleveland, Ohio, Pittsburgh, New Jersey, New York, Atlanta, Savannah, Georgia. Sullivan's getting more popular every week. Check it out at your favorite uh, corner establishment or even in the stores. It's available in stores in Kansas as well. I want to thank our producer, Pat Feldball. He does it every week now, putting up with my technical ineptitude, getting our podcast up every week, and our thanks to Pat. So the Bills play the Rams on Sunday, hosting the Rams. Our podcast next week, we'll discuss that game, where the Bills are at, and we're going to talk with Sullivan's brewmaster, Ian Hamilton, a legendary brewmaster in Ireland. Hope to see you then. You've been listening to John Murphy and the Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's all about the Bills and the beer.